everybody. Welcome to episode 349 of The Virtual Couch. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father of four, ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, which is an online pornography recovery program. And just a heads up, going into the new year, I know new year, new you, and I've done episodes about New Year's resolutions in the past and the science behind them and how to set value-based resolutions and what you do when you notice that you aren't keeping your resolutions and all of those things. I'm sure that I'll do another episode here in a few weeks that is similar, but I am going to do something this year that I haven't done before in the vein of new year, new you, I am going to offer a discount on my path back recovery program. And I'll do that through the month of December because the path back is not just about turning to pornography as an unhealthy coping mechanism. No, it is actually about becoming a better version of you in general so that you don't have this desire or need to turn to unhealthy coping mechanisms. So I find that uh, really when you nail down, can you become a better person in your marriage, a a better parent? Can you get your health squared away? Are you in a job that you enjoy or can you work values into your job? And where are you at with your faith? And if you can address those areas, which I like to call voids and start to feel better in those areas, the siren song of turning to unhealthy coping mechanisms lessens. And that's the big piece around the path back, which has been so powerful. And there is also a weekly group call that has been just phenomenal that is going on as part of that path back. So if you are interested, reach out email me contact at tonyoverbay.com or go through my website and I will deliver that information to you personally through the, the interwebs. I'll give you that information and sign up for my newsletter. The, the magnetic marriage podcast is coming soon. So I want to give you more information on that and please follow me on Instagram and uh, LinkedIn and TikTok and Facebook. There's a lot of content that I'm sharing now through those social media platforms. And it's because I have this amazing social media team uh, called the yeah, yeah agency and they just get me. I feel like they speak my voice and they're making social media, dare I say, easy and enjoyable, which is something that I haven't really embraced in the past. And, uh, and I really love creating content. So they're helping me put that content out there. So please follow me on those areas. But let's get to today's interview. I am not going overboard when I say that there are basically three people in the world of acceptance and commitment therapy that I have always wanted to have on my podcast. Uh, Number one is Dr. Stephen Hayes, who's the founder of ACT. And the second one would be Russ Harris, who has written many ACT-related books, including a couple of my very favorites, The Confidence Gap, The Happiness Trap, and another one that's uh, very, it's incredible for both clinicians and the end users, which is Act Made Simple, the second edition. They've added so much more into that because that book became so popular. But the third person is Dr. Michael Tuhig. And I would say that he is about the foremost ACT researcher out there. And I've been familiar with his work for years. I read of his research that actually had to do with using ACT and helping people turn away from pornography a long time ago. And it was when I was really starting to become more vocal about how I feel we need to handle people struggling with things like turning to pornography as unhealthy coping. And at that time, I feel like there were just a, a couple of us. Um, I learned a lot of what I did from Craig Para, who is creator of a program called The Mindful Habit. But Michael Tuhig's research just backed up everything that we were saying about how to effectively treat the issue without the need for shame or not simply just trying to do behavioral things like uh, 
of singing hymns or doing push-ups or that sort of thing. And and I feel like Dr. Tuhig's research really played a big role in helping me feel validated to move forward in the way that I've been helping people now for a long, long time. So fast forward many years, and I have reached out to Dr. Hayes, people, and, and Russ Harris, and I've received feedback from both, but I've just been unable to really nail down a time to have them on for interviews. But with the help of my wonderful assistant, Naomi, we were able to book Michael and the interview was absolutely incredible. It, it absolutely delivered. We talk about the nuts and bolts of acceptance and commitment therapy and his start, which he didn't get into the field to, to do act. He was more of a behavioral psychologist. And then we really talk about things like uh, how ACT helps with OCD, which is incredible because as a therapist who works with people with OCD on occasion, whether it's OCD, a religious thought, scrupulosity, or really just the honest to goodness hand washing or uh, fear of germs, or if it's the pure OCD or just turning to things in our heads to ruminate or to try to make sense of things, ACT has just been phenomenal. And it is quite different than the way that OCD is, is typically handled. So we also talk about ACT's version of exposure therapy versus just exposure simply for the sake of exposure, which I know I've talked about on some previous episodes. And Mike was gracious with his time. He was engaging. We had a hiccup in the middle. So I don't think that you'll hear a difference in audio. I think we've been able to handle that in post. But if you do somewhere around the halfway point, it's because we had to switch the platform on which we were communicating. But he was just uh, so incredibly gracious with his time. And I loved that we just had some, he, he answered a lot of my questions about, I go big on ACT. I really do. But there are some concepts like in ACT, you have this concept of expansion or making room for all of your feelings and emotions, and, and you can bring them along with you while you do things that are value-based. But then I also do a lot of work with trauma and the concepts around the book, The Body Keeps the Score, where if your body is trying to tell you something, at what point do you have to really listen to that versus inviting those feelings and thoughts and emotions to come along with you while you do things? And he had a great answer about that. And then he becomes the second person ever to let me try and make him laugh because I feel laughter is so incredibly important to our mental health. Very quickly, his background, I will read a little bit about that, his background from his site on the Utah State website because he's a professor there. And oh, and he has a very, its I've taken it now, but an incredible course on ACT and OCD that will open back up in early 2023. So I'll have the links to that. And let me just read, though, his background off of this Utah State website. It says it's in his voice. He says, I've been a professor of psychology at Utah State since 2007, and I do a small amount of clinical work on the side. As a professor, I teach graduate students how to be therapists via courses and in a practicum at a university-based clinic. While I research many topics, my main line of work has been on the development of ACT for OCD and specifically trichotillomania. And he talks about that on the interview. So if you're not familiar with that, you will be. And the integration of ACT and exposure therapy. He's published hundreds of papers and many books on these topics. And he says, even though he sees only a handful of clients at a time, he's found that there are two groups of clients that do well with him. The first are adults with anxiety disorders, things like panic disorder or OCD and related disorders. The other come to him through clinical experience. He says he seems to be a good fit for professionals, meaning other therapists or professors or executives. And as a therapist himself, he says he is easygoing, compassionate, and relatively straightforward. He's problem-focused and open to short or long-term therapy. In his personal life, he's married, has a couple of kids. He loves living in Utah. He says he loves playing in the mountains. He rides bikes, snowboards, hikes, and rock climbs 
although he says poorly. And uh, he says, you can learn more about my day job at utahact.com. And I'll have that link in there as well. So let's get to this interview today. And I'm uh, excited to hear your own feedback. And he has already been so kind to say that he would come back on. So if you have specific questions that come up today, I know a lot of therapists listen to the virtual couch, or if you're somebody that is really, I get so much good feedback about people that feel like act has been a, a game changer for them as well, but then there's still a lot of questions around it. So if you are just casually learning more about act, or if you're somebody trying to implement act in your practice or your day-to-day life, and you have specific questions, please, by all means, send them to me through my website or contact at tonyoverbay.com. And I'll get uh, Mike back on and we'll answer those questions. And, and we'll talk about a lot of other things that uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about in this interview. So without further ado, uh, let me bring you Dr. Michael Tuhig, and we're going to talk all things act. Okay, I will start with the former. I mean, you were so kind to say, call me Mike, but Dr. Michael Tuig, welcome to the virtual couch. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, I have you on this pantheon of my big gets. So I don't know if you ever get that vibe or I mean, is it, I don't know. How do you feel about that? Knowing that you are one of these world-renowned ACT researchers. Yeah, I don't feel that way in the slightest. (laughs) Yeah, let me think. Do I ever bump into that? I don't know. I feel like sometimes grad students applying here give me that Uh feeling because they're all excited. But no, really in my real life, I don't really bump into that. And then one of the things about being a faculty member is your life really is kind of between your office and your lab. So that's okay. all you really, you really bump into. So whenever someone's like, Oh, I like your work. That is kind of cool. Cause you know, you don't yeah. really get to bump into that very often. Okay. Well, I, I sing your praises often. And so I'm going to try to be very calm and, and very collected throughout this interview. So what I'm really curious about, and this one is going to be a personal, I just want to know, and then hopefully listeners will enjoy it as well. So I learned CBT out of grad school and I did CBT for a few years. And then when I learned ACT, it really was like the skies parted and the heavens shone down and then it's changed my life, my practice. And then most of my podcast is all talking about ACT. And, And I'm curious, what has your experience been with it? I mean, you've studied under Stephen Hayes. And so I would love to hear your story about. Yeah. Thanks for asking that question. Cause it's, you know, I feel like I was really lucky because I didn't plan this. It just right. Like sometimes things just happen. So I'll tell you the story. I hope the listeners aren't bored because it's kind of fun. I'm working at the university of Wisconsin, Milwaukee with a guy named Doug Woods, who's the best. And we're treating people with trichotillomania. And I remember saying to Doug, I said, you know, I was getting a master's in behavior analysis and I said, Doug, we're doing a good job teaching people how to stop pulling their hair, but they have all this emotion and urges and there's all this internal stuff and behavior therapy is not like, we don't really have a strategy for it. And he said, you should learn act. And, oh. and it was interesting because I, this is like 1999 and I really okay. liked Steve Hayes at the time because he wrote a lot of good like behavior analysis theory on language and cognition and you know, like how private events work. So I knew of him as kind of like a researcher of behavior analysis. So the two of us in 1999 flew out to Reno and did an act workshop. And back then they're like 24 hour workshops, right? It was like Uh just ridiculously long and not many people. So we went and I, I remember being at it and not really enjoying it per se, because it was like really? a little too much. Yeah, because I was a behavior analyst and this like <laughs> watching your emotions and sitting there and seeing your thoughts, <laughs> you know, floating by. I wasn't, I didn't totally like, yeah, yeah, it was out of the world that I lived in. <laughs> yeah. 
But when I was finished with the workshop, an interesting thing is like the thing I took away is you can have whatever thoughts or feelings you have and that's just fine. And that was what 24 hours taught me. So then we came back and we integrated ACT and behavior therapy for the treatment of trichotillomania. And it clicked really well. And I remember at one point, like clicked well for the clients. I remember at one point, Doug Wood says, Mike, you don't know what a good idea this is. Mm-hmm. And he's right. Cause I was like 23 at the time, right? Like I didn't know yeah. that this was a pretty wise career move. So the next step would be, I apply to grad schools and I'm not that great a student, but when I applied to work <laughs> with Steve, I had done an act project and, mm-hmm. you know, in 2001, not many people had done an ACT project. So that's how I got into grad school. And those years were from 2002 to 2006 at UNR were super fun years because Steve had just stopped being department head. So he had more time. Mm-hmm. And that's when ACT was in Time Magazine. I don't know if you know, there's... Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, if you look at like when the study started coming out, like that's when everything was happening. Like ACDS you were, you were was there. formed. Yeah. yeah. And it was super fun. Um I just felt like the whole time in the lab was really inspired. You know, we thought we were changing the world. I never felt like I was at work ever. Okay. And then that was my world, behavior therapy and act. And I guess it's always stayed that way. But yeah, yeah it's kind of a weird thing because the only therapy I knew how to do was act. So yeah. most people I bump into went traditional CBT, then act. Yeah. So like I had to learn how to do traditional CBT later. Okay, which is funny because I really want, and I, I don't want to talk much at all in this episode, but I really would love, can I lay out what I say about my aha moment of CBT versus ACT? And I honestly, Please. Mike, I want, I kind of want you to poke holes in it because now I realize I have confabulated this narrative where now I think I've got everything figured out, which obviously means I don't. So I was a CBT therapist. I was an intern working for my church, nonprofit. And, yeah. and I had a guy that came in and he was, he had lost like half of his weight. And he had social anxiety and I was trying to do the CBT skills of, okay, you know, he walks into a room and everybody turns and looks at him and, and then he feels shame and he leaves. And so in Mm -hmm. the CBT world, well, those are, that's automatic negative thoughts. That's his stinking thinking. And so what are other reasons why they might be looking at you? They might think you look great. They might just turn when a door opens and, you know, he would leave and say, yeah. And then, and they would come back and then he would say, did not work, you know, and again, start doing the, all right, what's wrong with me? This sounds like a good tool. And then we would come up with other things or other reasons. And I literally then went to an act workshop. And for me, it was, oh, and I say this often, he's the only version of him that's ever walked the face of the earth with his nature, nurture, birth order, DNA, abandonment, rejection, all that. And so that's how he feels. I, so I love yeah. what you're saying. Right. So then, so then of course he's going to think everybody's looking at him because he walked around as a 400 pound, 12 year old where everybody did look at him. So sure. if he didn't think they were, that would kind of be crazy. You know? So I started off by, okay, acceptance that that's how you feel. And then we got into the values and he had a value of connection and the social connection. And so then whether they're looking at him or not, doesn't matter. It's not a productive thought and he can bring that along with him. And so it was like a game changer. But then I realized now all of a sudden I go black and white and now I think CBT is horrible and, uh, mm-hmm. and it's, it's almost doing damage. And because, you know, it says you're starting with your negative thoughts now, just change them, you know, just to be happy. And then when I feel like here's the part I make up. So this is where I want you to poke holes, please. So then the third part is, and then if I say to somebody, Hey, how's that working for you, champ? Then they say, okay, well, I already started with broken thoughts and automatic negative thoughts. I can't just change them magically, but that right. must, must be my problem. So then I feel like they say, no, it's, it's doing pretty good. And then they leave and just feel like I got to figure this out. Uh-huh. And then they leave therapy. And then I feel like then they look for the next self-help book or whatever. And so I feel like ACT was, 
So I think I've almost demonized CBT, but then I know that what ACT is, is what do we call it? The next level CBT. So please oh, tell me I'm wrong. And thing, third wave. Say, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So can you explain that and then and either validate the heck out of me or tell me I'm wrong? I'm, well, I'm, I'm up. <laughs> I think you're on a great track because you said, here's the part that I'd like you to double check. Yeah. Is yeah. The, how is that working for you? Yeah. And that question, like when you said it, the like light bulb, you know, that went off for me is what does that mean to him when you say, how is that working for you? And what do you mean? When you say, how is that working for you? Because clients will usually go, how is that working? Am I feeling better? I'm doing air quotes. And an act therapist would say, how's that working for you? Meaning like, how is this working in your life? Is your going in the directions you want to go? Yeah. And that's what I feel like was so good. I like your question because if I was saying, how is that working for you? And meanwhile, I'm handed a a population. And this is funny because I didn't even remember that it was you that I read an article about that helped me here too. But I was working with people that were struggling with turning to pornography as an unhealthy coping mm-hmm. mechanism. And and the training I was getting at that time was a lot of, you know, seeing him do some push-ups, behavioral. And then I felt like, ooh, that one's not quite working. And then I think I read something that you did there about was it yeah. mindfulness? What, yeah. And that was yeah. that was also a game changer. And so then it was getting people then start to just take action on things that matter. And right now we're going to not worry about the unhealthy coping mechanism. You know, nothing's wrong with you. You're human. And the more they started doing things of value, then the more they started to feel better and the less they turned to the unhealthy coping mechanism. And so then, yeah, so I think my, well, how's that working for you? I think I then had, I think the part with trying to identify people's values was a real challenge, you know? Yeah. And I think the shift right there is you can say to a client or the two of the two of you, you know, I don't know if this is a listener. Actually, I told you two of my friends said something about it being mentioned on your podcast. And one is not a therapist and one is a therapist. So okay. I'll say it for, for both people or both styles of people that we can work on altering how we feel or we can work on altering how we live. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're whole human beings. And whether you alter either one, it's going to affect all sorts of stuff. So if you change yeah. the way you live, you'll change the way you feel. If you could change the way you feel, you'll probably change the way you live. But from the kind of an act or behavior therapy model, we're going to lean on changing the way you live to affect, you know, without the goal of affecting how you feel, but it will. Uh So like this client, when he says it's not working, my question would be, well, which one are we going to focus on? Are we going to focus on what you feel internally or how you're living? And I say this to clients a lot, that a lot of the things I really care about and a lot of things like I work hard on don't feel good. You know, yeah. like parenting a teen doesn't like feel fun. It just, <laughs> yeah. but it's meaningful. It's important, but it's not like, woo, you know, that was yeah. great. Or even the same thing, like writing a paper, it's not the same as snowboarding. So like mm. the feeling and the importance of it. So yeah, it's orienting the client and you to, to what's meaningful. Well, and I, what I like about that so much, Mike, is sometimes I think in my head that if a client almost, I'm going to air quote, breaks act where I think, oh, well, that was well played, where if maybe they don't hold a value of, I don't know if they almost hold a value of, I know there isn't necessarily in the values list codependency, but I'll get people mm-hmm. to say, no, my, my core value is helping everybody else and putting myself second. And, and I want to say, but no, that, that one's not cool. But then, you know, what it feels like to be them. And so I like what you're saying of, uh, yeah, that, that change in the behavior or right. living by ones. Yeah. Cause I feel like I don't want to sound arrogant, but I feel like, okay, that is where that person's at right now. But if I go back to that, how's it working for you? Then 
sometimes I feel like, oh, okay, they're, they're trying to just adapt or cope with this thing that, that they don't enjoy. Yeah, and I'll often, like that question, I'll be more precise. I'll say, how's that working to change these thoughts about your self-image? Or I'll say, how's that working yeah. to be part of the group or, you know, yeah. be yeah. out there doing the things that are important to you? Hey, okay, so speaking of that too, and I know that this is going to feel like five minutes to me of talking with you. I really like the work you've done with ACT and OCD. And mm-hmm. I had read Brain Lock, I think, when I was doing yeah. OCD work initially. And, and I feel now like maybe because I love ACT so much that I've almost had my own emotional immaturity, black and white, that, oh, that was bad and this is good. But how does ACT and OCD stand out from traditional cognitive behavioral therapy? So, and this fits with the conversation we were just having, kind of the easiest mm-hmm. way I've found to describe this is like, no matter your theoretical orientation for treating an anxiety disorder or OCD, I like to break it down to what is the outcome you're looking for? Like, how do you, mm-hmm. how do you and your client agree things are better? What's the process of change? What is it you're trying to instill in the person that would help them be able to do these things? And then what are the techniques you use to instill that process of change? So in ACT, I think the main outcome that we're shooting for is that a person can live sort of a successful and meaningful life. Mm-hmm. And I think for those who know OCD, what's missing from that is any statement about what's happening internally. So I don't need the power or the frequency or the words in the obsession to be different. I just need the person to be able to effectively live when they show up. And then the process of change is psychological flexibility, which is being able to see thoughts as thoughts, emotions as emotions, sensations as sensations, allow them to be there and still move in the directions you want in life. Right. So again, nothing Mm. needs to change. We just need to not be overpowered by it. Yeah. And then the techniques we use, what I tell my practicum students is, you know, we teach people how to be psychologically flexible until they kind of get it. Mm. And then we start practicing. And those can look like exposure exercises. But as you can imagine, the style's different that we're not, we're not watching intensity of internal experience. We're not watching habituation. It's more like, let's practice having what you have. And then we have our own style for doing exposure exercises. And can you talk a little bit more about that too? Because I feel like the exposure for the sake of exposure to reduce anxiety. And I, boy, I'm wanting to be so emotionally vulnerable here today is I realize, and maybe it's just, I I have created a narrative in my head of I've had clients that haven't had good experiences with just, okay, let's sit on a dirty floor because you don't like germs you know, right. So can you explain the difference there in act? Well, okay. There's a couple things. Why don't we start with when I think about doing an exposure, I would like the Mm -hmm. exposure to have some tied values and either that's, that's obvious for someone with social phobia, we might go talk to people or send a message to someone we haven't, or practice giving a phone call to someone they like, like you can make it values based. Sometimes it's harder. But then even in that moment, we're going to help the client see how it could be values-based. So if we're dealing with a germ phobia or OCD, we might go manipulate a garbage can or go to a bathroom. And then let's practice having this stuff so that when the real game shows up, you're good at it. And I'll use like a sports Mm -hmm. analogy of just practicing being good at having what you have. And I'll remind the person a lot, like, 
when's the situation when this might happen? When you're going to go out on a date or go out to dinner or something, and these things are going to show up. I think what stands out to those who maybe do exposure work is I have never had a, a moment where I would go above and beyond or do those sort of extreme exposures because I kind uh-huh. of struggle to figure out where those tie to values. Yeah, okay, I love it. Yeah. Our outcomes are just fine, but I don't have to lick a gas pump or, you know, <laughs> like rub my food on the toilet. And I did that work, you know, back when Did I you really? Worked. Well, yeah, because I worked in an OCD clinic at the University of British Columbia. And we wow. did kind of the Gail Steckety, Edna Foa, yeah. habituation curves. And it, it can work if the person can engage. It works very well. Mm. But they have to be able to engage, right? So yeah. I always said, and I'm not knocking that work. It's great work. Right. If, if you have 10 people, two will do nothing, five will get better, and the other three kind of putter along. Yeah. It's like those five who can't do this. They can't get behind the exposure work. Okay. You know, I give a story that I think, again, maybe I swing to the extremes, but I've often said, okay, if somebody just lets a spider crawl over you to reduce anxiety, that's ridiculous. It might cause you to disassociate. But if your grandpa leaves you a $2 million spider farm, then maybe that might be in you know, yeah. a value of uh, financial security for your children. Then maybe I'm willing to sit with the spiders. I mean, so is it kind of, we got to find some value if we can. I think a value gives meaning to the work. Yeah. Go back to raising kids. I remember sitting and doing homework with my daughter and just many years ago, and she's essentially crying and trying to get away from the table and like everything about it's terrible. Mm-hmm. And then I'm being sweet and nice and as helpful as I can be because I can find a value in this is meaningful to me to help this kid be a decent student so she can do the steps she needs to do and go on and do whatever she wants to do with her career. Yeah. Like I could find reason, but if I didn't like this kid or didn't care, <laughs> yeah. kid screaming at me, it'd be hard to find motivation to stay there and be nice. Yeah. Yes. No, that makes so much sense. And man, I just, I want to go on a tangent, but I'll get back to the act sure. piece. But when you mentioned one of the things that also I feel like dramatically game changer for me were the concepts of socially compliant goal and then yeah. experiential avoidance. And, yeah. and can maybe you uh, as like an expert in this field kind mm-hmm. of speak to how those show up? Yeah. 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 Rules. Like when you said socially compliant goal, rules are really interesting things. Um, mm-hmm. And this is a good point for a professional and non-professional that an interesting thing about humans is we decide the way the world works and then we follow that. And mm-hmm. the truth is it's never fully accurate. Like it's always, mm-hmm. it could be close to the way the world works or it could be totally far off. But yeah, that's an interesting thing about human beings is that We'll make this rule about what we're supposed to do, and then we'll just keep following it. And lots of research has said it's really hard to help people do things differently. Like, it's hard to create variability in behavior. If someone has a problem or, or like, they have a way of living that's not really functional, some mm-hmm. of that is they've determined how it all works, and they've been doing the exact same thing for 20, 30 years. And part of the therapist's job is to create flexibility in different behavior patterns. Yeah. And that is tricky. Now, the experiential avoidance stuff is just that humans spend a lot of their time working to feel a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's in contrast with doing the things that are important to us. Yeah. So one of the lines I say is, I think healthy, happy people are probably spending 80% of their day doing things that are important to them. Okay. I didn't say fun. I said important. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then people who are maybe less healthy 
are probably spending 80% of their day working hard to feel good. Mm. And those are like the clients I see who, if I say like, what was meaningful to you today? They don't have much. Their whole day was about dodging the anxiety and getting away from stuff that they're afraid of. Yeah. I could launch into a whole thing there where I, I feel like with the amount of things that we can use for experiential avoidance, phones, games, unlimited access yeah. to downloads of things, I do feel like that's so difficult for people that aren't aware of what is important to them Yeah, and why I feel like that values work can even be more difficult and yet even more important. And I even, you know, I do a lot of couples therapy, Mike, and I find that I will not do the individual, I won't do the values exercises with the couple in there because boy, you watch even the way that let's say a guy wants to express that he doesn't necessarily have a core value of honesty, more, maybe more one of compassion because he grew up in a home where there was brutal honesty and that was harmful. But then if his wife hears that, that's not a value. And and so I, I, right. So I feel like just that example, I feel like the dynamic of even trying to get to one's core values or what matters to them can be tricky because I think people are still worried that I don't know if you hear this often, but the, I know I shouldn't care about, you know, or I know I'm supposed to care about, I don't know. Do you hear that in the work you do? When I heard you talking about this, one of the things I was thinking about is with my clients, I worry less about having the right values. Uh Just more like, is your behavior about values? And then people get into like, well, I care about so many things and I can't balance them all. And to me, that's more that fusion and rule following that I'm supposed to do this right. And yeah. No, we're always wrong. You're always not living your values perfectly. But if you're at least living your values, that's pretty solid. And if you're too heavy in one area and too weak in another area, then you can work at it. But I'll never, Mm -hmm. I'll never balance this out totally. Right. I'll always be a little too heavy on work. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Yeah. And I like what you're saying, because I do find that if I'm kind of bringing somebody from a, they don't know what they don't know to now they know, but don't know how to, in mm-hmm. essence. And I love that you bring that because I feel like, okay, we have to figure out your values. But then I find that then often, oh, I still got to work on my values becomes a story their brain is fusing to. I went to a training with a lady about ACT and she said that at that point, she tells a client, just walk outside and begin you know, because at some point, right. And now I see an animal. I don't like animals. Okay. We'll note that I tried to talk to a stranger. That was fun. Maybe there's, you know, there's something there. And I just love that concept. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the rule stuff. If I'm going to do this, I got to do this right. Well, you can't live right. It's going to be full of errors and mistakes. And it's just like how it is being a person on the planet. Yeah. I was giving a workshop and it's one of the moments it kind of stuck with me. This was a workshop just like a couple months ago. And I'm up there doing a role play and all my students are there and all these professionals are there. And the role play is just like going really poorly and not really <laughs> poorly, but you know, in the poorly category. And it was in a weird way, kind of nice because you know, that's how workshops will be. You'll be saying really fun, smart things at one point, and then you'll just be stinking and that's life. And I think in a way it was like a good model for the group. Like, yeah, well, therapy will... Sometimes you'll you'll like totally go into a dead end and you just have to walk back and go the other way. I love that. Okay. Over back to the OCD treatment plan, which, and I love your, you've got a course and I'm going to have, I want to promote that in the notes as well. Um, Mm -hmm. But you do a lot of metaphors and I have to, again, it's so nice. I feel like you're now my therapist for this. Um, (laughs) I don't know why I I felt this insecurity around dealing with all the metaphors in act at first, because there's a part of me that felt like this person's paying me a large amounts of money for me to tell stories. And now all of a sudden, once I embraced act metaphors, oh my gosh, they're so powerful. And so what has that been like for you? Do you like metaphors? How do you feel they fit in? 
So what I think is, okay, the idea of metaphors goes right back to our rule stuff. Like in act, okay. we like to teach experientially versus rules because then people will rigidly follow yes. what we said. So we like to tell a story about it or use a personal example or use a client's life example. And sometimes like a metaphorical thing describes it better. Like just before I said, you know, I went the wrong way down the alley and I had to realize, okay, wrong spot. And I had to back out that that metaphor is rich because we've all felt that you go down a trail and you're like, uh, this isn't right. And then you have to like literally, so there's a, there's knowledge that comes with our real life experience. So Mm. I could say your mind is picking on you. Like someone picked on you in grade school. It just has more meaning because people got picked on in grade school and they knew what that was like and they can link the two. And I think it's richer than me sort of lecturing on, you know, what sense. what c- cognition is like. <laughs> so I think that's the two parts. It's kind of rich and it's not so rule based, but you asked what it's like for me. I think at the beginning I had to use ones from the book, but then mm-hmm. now it's just sort of my style. And I've sort okay. of also learned, I learned how to make metaphors that match the client's interests, but I've also learned how to use self-disclosure at that safe level. Already talked about use my kids as examples and no one hears, yeah. Oh my gosh, what a bad parent. You know, it's uh, a metaphor that I think most people with kids can appreciate. And if yeah. you don't have, kids, I, don't, I you like can that. Imagine. Yeah. No, and it's funny. I don't think I've been doing this as long as you have. I'm at 17, 18 years, but I feel yeah. like even that concept of self-disclosure has been more embraced over the years that when I yeah. first started, that seemed like that was taboo, but yeah. I, I feel like it's more of that human experience. Um, and I yes. think like act makes more of room for that. I feel like than my CBT days. Well, yeah, it'd be weird to be like, oh my gosh, you have these negative thoughts about yourself. So strange. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right, right. Hey, do you have a, a particular favorite of the metaphors though? I am curious. Of course, that's me wanting to say, because I do, Mike, but yeah, what do you... Yeah, what's what funny, your... what's funny, my students forever make fun of me that I lean towards sports ones, yeah. but that doesn't mean it's right. It's just like, <laughs> I, can, I can find so many rich examples and actually, we wrote a book and the, one of the editors like, how about we take out just a handful of the sports ones and we like mix in some, <laughs> other, some other, other ideas. So what I do, but with a client, I try to like gauge what they're into yeah, and then go, go that way. Um, cause you know, I'm laughing like, because I, 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 have you ever had those fail? I mean, cause I don't know in the past, I feel like I would talk maybe, yeah, maybe I'm going to give one about gardening and halfway yeah. through I realize. I have no idea what, you know, right, right. but maybe you plant something and I don't know, you, you know what I'm saying? You know, do you ever have I do, them? And I think there's a little, yeah. there's a little skill in just assuming that like things work under a natural order and this will work. So I like the client, I like have the client help me along as, as like, <laughs> that's actually really driving. good, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so your, your uh, favorite, you said you had a favorite though. <laughs> You're very good, Mike. Cause I was going to say, but I love the one about the, you fall in a hole and you've got a shovel. I love that one so much because I feel like I, I work with people that are determined to yeah. then know that, right. The, the shovel is an amazing tool by itself and I am a hard worker. And yes. so I love being able to say and have clients say to me, and then I went and grabbed my shovel and I dug a little bit more. And yeah. then my favorite ever is the, and then somebody hands you the ladder and you try to deal yeah. with it. And so that one alone to me, that was the metaphor that then allowed me to embrace metaphors. Talk about your course a little bit. I mean, have you, have you done courses? Have you done a lot of courses? Is that something you enjoy doing or what was that like? Well, 
Yeah, if I can, you know, kind of a a broader answer. It's an interesting thing being a professor because I really enjoy training my students how to do therapy, and that includes ACT. But, you know, professors were almost taught to not market. So that's been like a weird thing because, well, I feel like after all these years, I actually do know ACT pretty well, and I kind of know how to teach people how to do it. But I have this like weird emotional reaction that happens when it's like, well, you know, come to my workshop or buy my book. And I've been able to let that go more and more in the Mm -hmm. sense that this work does good. And people, like, even if they're very good at therapy, we can get stagnant or stale and coming at things from another perspective can be really useful. ACT is getting big and people want to know, ACT is big, and people want to know how to do it. And I'm really privileged to work at a university where they... They give me the time to sit and develop things, yeah. like write a paper, write a book. You know, like if you're a clinician, how do you find the time to write a book, right? It's oh, like... It's insane. Yeah. 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 And it's it's really great that a university is like, that's, why, that's what we want you to do. So something like this course, it took me a little bit to... It's an act for anxiety disorders and OCD. Mm-hmm. It took me a little bit to sort of wrap my head around like, no, it's okay to create something that, that yeah. is going to get sold. And I think I had to find the value there, which is, I do think this work's important. And I've yeah. put a lot of time into understanding how to do this. And then I started feeling good about getting it out there. And it's a really high, high quality course. And that's it another is. just, it's another great thing. I think it's, it's worth what people have to put into it. And why I'm so grateful for what, the way you just shared that, Mike, I have a lot of therapists that do listen and I feel mm-hmm. like I have a, a fair amount of life coaches and I feel like there's oh, a, yeah. a, a battle between the therapist and life coach. And I talk about this from time to time, the guy that helped me create my magnetic marriage course, which man, I'm right there with you. I feel like I have this stuff I want to share and I know it can help, but then I right. feel anxiety around promoting it. I feel like I'm being prideful and boastful. And so I will often set the frame up by saying I'm standing in my healthy ego, which nobody else knows what I mean by that, but it makes me feel better. Um, yeah. is, you know, healthy ego based on real experience work and that sort of thing. But here's what I think is interesting. And I want, I would love your opinion. So I bought courses by other researchers, Sue Johnson, and, and I bought Stephen Hayes's course and I've got your yeah. course. And, and then as I was creating a course, I was struggling with the guy that's helped me. He's a, a, a very successful life coach named Preston Pugmire. And he kept talking about selling the destination. And do you, do you know this concept? No. Okay. It's this, I fought him for about a year on this. And so, you know, he would say that, okay, if you look at a Delta airlines commercial, they show the family in Hawaii. Mm. So they're selling Mm -hmm. the destination. This is what you want, but they Mm -hmm. offer a plane. And basically what he said is that I, what I was doing is saying, well, I've got these, what I call my four pillars of a connected conversation based off of emotionally focused therapy. And here's the nuts and bolts and here's the emotional bid. And so I'm saying, Hey, forget the destination. Let me show you how cool my plane is. Cause I've got these really cool nuts oh, and both. Right. And yeah, that's, yeah. And that's what I yeah. felt like. And, and then I realized, and I love this, like the courses I've taken from somebody like a Sue Johnson. And I feel like, Oh, as a clinician, I'm buying the nut. I want to see how the rivets go into the seats and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. so I found that then if I'm trying to get a client to get excited about a course like that, they sit through maybe one section of it. And then it's like, eh. totally, totally. Yeah. Right. And so, totally. so I found it's a weird balance to try to sell the destination and have the, this person that I trust help me create it, say, nobody cares about your plane. And that's where I'm saying, okay, I got to stay out of my healthy ego as a clinician and say, I think it does matter, but I will try to work some of the destination 
in the coolest plane that you can get there, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So I love your honesty around that because I feel like a lot of the therapists I work with, if we're the first course I ever put out was probably, probably just showing how to make a a bolt or, you know, that sort of thing. That's a really nice point because it's real values consistent because it's like, I don't love writing every paper I write, but while I'm writing them, I usually connect to like, well, this is really cool. I want people to read this. I want this to be out there. Yeah. And same, I'm not trying to sell the course here per se, but it's a neat sort of values analogy that there's a lot like take trichotillomania and OCD that the course isn't on trick, but let's say, you know, <laughs> OCD and panic. If you knew how to treat those well, yeah. you will always be busy. Like you, yeah. will never, you will always have a flow of people, which means there's that many people out there who are looking for therapists and my life, and I'm not knocking any therapists around me. My life is seeing people after they've seen other people Yeah, because, and nothing against the person who, who worked with them before. Sometimes clients need to be in a new spot, but hard panic cases, hard OCD cases, you probably do have to do the best of breed intervention. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you're not going to get the movement. So yeah, that is, that's a nice way of thinking about it. I'm not promising if you learn how to do act for anxiety disorders, you're going to win every time. But yeah. I do think this is where the data is today. Yeah. Like this is well thought out, well researched. It's as good a bet as you can think of right now. See, and I love that because I feel like that is healthy ego and healthy ego comes from our actual lived experience. And I I had a whole career in the computer industry where I didn't realize, yeah, and I didn't enjoy it. It was not value-based. I lived for the weekend, but then by the weekend, I was so bummed from the week that then I kind of didn't care. And I would say, well, next weekend or next, you know, that whole thing. And so I do, I appreciate what you're saying because I feel like from a healthy ego, it's more of like that, what we feel like inside and I am offering this. So I love that you just shared that because I think that'll resonate with so many people that are listening. Oh, um, good. Yeah. Good. And and maybe because I have to bring my insecurities and anxiety and fear of invalidation along with me, maybe mm-hmm. you know, while, mm-hmm. while, while I put those things out there. Um, mm-hmm. So, no, I love that. So would you rather work with OCD than any any other thing? Or is it just something that you have found yourself really good at? OK, interesting question. I started out working with trichotillomania. And which, st- which, by the way, you've mentioned that. And I know some of my clients aren't going to know, but so oh. talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a disorder where people pull their hair out. And if you're like, why? I'd say it's a really self-soothing, we, we call it egocentonic. That's a very mm. enjoyable behavior for people. And almost all my clients would say, you know, I would happily pull my hair. And then if the next day I came back and all the hair had grown back, I would never be coming in because I enjoy doing it. Okay. But obviously they end up with bald patches and... Or, or, you know, huge hair loss. It can get pretty extreme. And then one of the things that happens is as you pull a lot, the area you pull from starts kind of getting infected and stuff. So oh. then it's almost like you need to pull because it's like a little infected. So you pull out the hairs that are infected and it feels better. So you get yourself caught in this trap. Oh, wow. So where this ties into OCD is that was like one of the areas I started. And then when I got to UNR to work with Steve, it was like, well, what's what's the next step? It would be OCD. Like trick and OCD are what we call like OCD and related disorders. So then I did my first studies on ACT for OCD. And what's slightly different is clients with OCD come in and they say, I hate this. My life is terrible. Please, please help me stop. And people with trick are like, ah, I know I should stop, but I don't really want to. Mm. So there's something about OCD clients that like they're really, they really want it gone. And that's kind of enjoyable to have clients who are just on the same page as you from day one. I will 
and I don't mean this to like pick on the clients. It is a little funny story, but I did an OCD trial followed by a marijuana dependence trial. Okay. And I have to, I have to tell you the difference in sort of like clients being on time and not canceling appointments. You know, like it's another thing, like my clients with OCD, it's, it's kind of easy work. Yeah. Yeah. That's They're on funny. time. They are ready to work. I mean, certainly there's hard times. So it's just the other thing, if I can just kind of keep blabbing, the idea of sticky thoughts is really fun to me. Please talk about that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So when someone has a really horrible thought and they just, they feel trapped, mm-hmm. I find it really fun, like disentangling it and helping them find a way to not get pushed around by that thought. And I have a sort of a unique style to myself where that stuff doesn't bother me. So, okay. you know, clients can describe all sorts of stuff. And I like, I'm a hundred percent. That's just a thought, you know, what, whatever this thing is. And that's been really fun. And then that has kind of learning that skill has generalized to other areas. Cause like really sticky thoughts show up in other disorders. So what's and an example, like, by the way, of a sticky thought, tell it to the listeners. Oh, you know, I, I'll admit I even got caught in it. Like, Oh, do I want to share one? <laughs> um, so so you're from Utah, so you have some yeah. knowledge of the local religion. Yeah. Oh, I, absolutely. Yes. Okay. So one of the most predominant things in the local religion to Utah is like the importance of family and yeah. taking care of your family. So OCD is always going to attack what you care about most. Yeah. So parents having thoughts about harming their kids is, I don't know, half of what I see. Yeah. And they come in and this, they're like, this is the worst. Like you can't get any worse than picturing seriously harming your own children. And I can just hear that and be like, that's an obsession. Let me work with you on what we should do with that. And they're like, but I'm a horrible person deep down. I'm a horrible human being who needs to get off this planet. And I'm like, no, you have an obsession. We got it. We'll figure this out. Like, it's okay. And when I hear someone say their obsession, like uh, just nothing, like I, I don't have an emotional reaction because I know it's an obsession. Yeah. Don't you feel like one of the, I I love that because I do talk about one of my first episodes five, six years ago was on intrusive thought syndrome. And at that time, right. I I said, we all have them just because you have them uh, doesn't mean anything. You're going to do them. And then thought suppression doesn't work. And at that, at that time, I actually was speaking to a lot of relief society organizations and I don't know why I found it hilarious. But when I would open it up, I would say, I would kind of share that just for fun and say, how many of you thought about your drive? And, and man, I could just mm, right over into mm-hmm. a tree and, and you would see the people think like, yeah, but I've never told anybody or, right. And, right. and I would tell a story about sharing this with my family. And we had a little Yorkie at the time. And I was sharing this with one of my daughters. She's like, you ever think about just uh, that you could snap her leg? And I'm like, I have thought that. Right. And then all of a sudden she's like, okay. And then we go all in on it. And my wife wasn't aware. And so then one night at the dinner table, we're talking about using a watermelon melon baller. And one of my kids saying, you ever thought about like, that could just be an eyeball, you know? (laughs) And I was like, I can see that, you know, and my wife, I think she was not up to speed on the conversations. But so I really like what you're sharing because I feel like being able to express it and having somebody just say, oh yeah, or I have, or tell me more. You know, there's some pretty cool research, right? That shows that, oh, the scary thing in my head and that person didn't react. Maybe it isn't as scary. Do you find that's the case? Well, I'll just give... Th- this is a really interesting one. When I worked at the University of British Columbia, they were finishing a, uh intrusive thoughts trial. So they were just oh, wow. treating... Yeah, they were just treating like sometimes what people call like Puro or... Yeah. Um, you know, where you have the obsession and then the compulsion is something you do in your head. You say a prayer, you try to squish the thought, you picture yes. something else. And it was interesting because the control condition 
actually got a lot better. I don't know what they did with the controlled condition, but it wasn't supposed to be that useful. Oh. And what we kind of, how we hypothesized it at the end was no one had ever said to these people, like, this is just an obsession. This isn't uh-huh. you. And like half of them walked in and they were just assuming this was a police sting. Like, like oh, these were, you know, funny. Like, yeah. like people who wanted to murder or kill or, you know, whatever the horrible obsession was. And they just assumed they'd walk in, the cops would be there. And they'd, and wow. they were like, no, this is an OCD clinic. You have OCD. Welcome to our world. And for a ton of people just hearing, like, there's a category of people who have really rough thoughts. And the truth is, the reason they have such rough thoughts is when they first had the initial ones, they tried so hard not to have them. Mm. that it went out of control. Whereas if you would have been like, that's weird, then it probably wouldn't have grown into anything. But if you tried really hard to get rid of it, yeah, then it just kept growing. Well, what I like about that too, is one of the things that I, in your treatment program or for OCD is you, and I wrote down a note on this. I like, can you maybe talk about 95% of life when you don't want it, you can get rid of it. And then the other five, that's, that's good stuff. So I don't know. Can Mm -hmm. you kind of explain that? Yes. Like in our life, this is, you know, second session of therapy in our life. If we don't like something, we can change it. If you need a haircut, you can get a haircut. If your room's dirty, you can clean it. Your clothes look grubby. You can purchase new ones. So then, you know, as you grow up in life, you have thoughts or feelings you don't like. Why wouldn't you try to get rid of them? Like everything else in life, if you don't like it, you could get rid of it. And a lot of times our families are going to say, yeah, that's how it works. But Like right now, if I said, you know, don't think of a pineapple or a pineapple painted blue that someone wrote, you stink on it. Like done, done and done. done. Right. Like you, it doesn't work that way. But if I said, you know, don't touch your keyboard or everyone can do that. Yeah. And that's the difference between like behaviors we do with our hands and our feet and attempting to control internal stuff. Internal stuff doesn't work that way. And frankly, it might work the opposite way. Yeah. And then one of the jokes I say in therapy a lot is this is the reason I have a job. Like if it worked, you wouldn't need me. Yeah. But it actually goes backwards. So that's probably why you need me. Well, I find a lot of things that that I feel like in the world of mental health are counterintuitive, which is, I guess Mm -hmm. I'd say that often too, that thank goodness, or I would be out of work. So I, you know, but then I know that's humor and sometimes we have to use humor and people, if it's heavy for them, that right. might sound right. And then, and I feel like that's maybe part of their avoidance is, well, I can't, this guy's being silly or I can't, I can't look at it a different way or somebody, he doesn't understand what it's like. And I don't know, I feel like, what do you do with those kind of situations? Yeah. You don't understand what it's like. I mean, I don't get that as much. I know people get it with other disorders. Uh-huh. And I will say from an act perspective, if I keep talking about that I have disturbing thoughts. I have frustrated thoughts. I feel overwhelmed. I don't feel good enough. Like that that's just part of being a human being. I I feel like it's probably nice for a client to see that, you know, my therapist who seems to have it together also doesn't feel smart enough and feels overwhelmed and feels annoyed. Right. And like, if he has it, then, then may not be so weird that I have it. And I'll definitely stress in my work, it's way more what you do with it than what you have. Well, I like that. 
Yeah. Well, it's yeah. funny, the insecurities, even we had a technical glitch there and we went silent for a while and, oh, I was all in my head about, man, this is my one chance. And I thought we were vibing and now Mike's never going to come back in and, <laughs> and, you know, and that whole thing. And it's funny the way we do that. We, and then I just had to yeah. notice that was the thought, you know, there was, yeah. that was something. Yeah. So really quick as well. I like that part about trying to control. So we don't do that. I do have one, I have a hypothetical, not even a hypothetical. So I would love your take just as I view you know this world-renowned act researcher and knows acts so well. And I tell you one thing that my latest kind of aha is I've got somebody. So if I have somebody that is, let's say they're in a job and they don't like their job and I've done, I've had enough of the experiences where I can then maybe have somebody, if they feel like they really can't do anything about it, that we can work their values into their current job. And then, you know, they might insert a value of humor or a value of connection, or they might go learn other value right. curiosity. And I've had some success with that, but then I've also had, you know, I do a lot of work with trauma and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Bessel van der Kolk book, the body keeps the score. And it, it talks no, a lot about, no. it, it's amazing. And so there's uh, mm. our, over time, cause our, emotions are they're traveling faster than our logical brain and you know that visceral reaction is our brain says is it safe and if it's safe then what do i do with it and so when people have felt unsafe they that emotional reaction can intensify and they're all up in their amygdala and that sort of thing so then i'll have people that will be in situations where and in a work situation where okay but my blood pressure is rising and i you know i'm starting to have different ailments and and then in the trauma world we say, okay, that's your body's trying to tell you something and we need to listen to it. And maybe that's not the right opportunity for you. And I've been doing so much of the act work where, oh, that's just, you know, these are stories your body, your brain's telling you. And so invite them to come along with you and insert your values. And so I don't know if you have any thoughts and I know I'm just bringing this on you right now, but yeah, it's, it's interesting because I've done all, I've done that with uh, act works so well. And I've had a couple of people that are like, man, I'm still trying to be present. I'm noticing, I'm meditating, I'm working, you know, but I am still, I am still having this visceral gut reaction. And, and so I feel like there's a, there's an interesting, I'm not sure which one to rely on, you know? Mm. Well, you tell me if I heard your question, right? Yeah. That, that if it's like the person's trying to be, be there for something, Mm -hmm. but it's hard because their internal stuff is so loud. Yeah. Yeah. It's well said. Yeah. And what I'd probably say to that client is, you know, we may have spent 20, 30 years conditioning this to be at this volume. And now that we are not giving it the attention it needs, it's going to scream pretty loud. And I would just like, I'd say, what do we want? Like, do we want it quiet or do we want to be in life? Because I'm going to be honest, it's not going to get quiet until you stop caring it's there. So if (laughs) if you're always kind of checking how loud it is, it's like it knows to put out some noise. So it's like, yeah. you really just have to shift the game and then, and then we'll see what will happen. Yeah. And it's interesting. The description you gave, maybe we're about the same age. I'm, yeah. I'm starting to get more and more clients who are, who are like, where do I want my life to go? Yeah. Is this like my career is not quite what I'm hoping, what I hoped yes. it would be. Yeah. And then I love that. Cause I, and then when I'm putting out there on my podcast that, yeah, I switched after 10 years and now I love everything I do and it's mm. value based and, and passionate. And then I'll feel like people will then say, well, yeah, but that was easy. You know, no, it was incredibly uncomfortable, but I find that then those, yeah, buts. that's why I, I mean, I call them the yeah, buts from act where, okay, I'm going to take action on this value and then sit back and now listen to all the yeah, buts, you know, cause right. it's scary. And, and right. I feel like, yeah. And I think that just the people hearing that that's part of the human experience is pretty cool. 
Hey, Mike, I just am grateful for your time. I really am. Thank I, you. I, hey, well, let me, okay. I, I am going to be very honest and say that I have done something exactly one other time with an interview a few days ago and I love humor. And I feel like that is something that maybe you can identify with as well. Um, yeah, you, totally. Okay. Okay. So I, I'm going to sound like this is either going to be something I will delete and never use again. There you go. Or yeah, choice. I, I would love to see if I, you cannot laugh and I'm going to read a couple of my funniest two line jokes ever. Okay. Oh, I'm going to be terrible at it. We'll try. <laughs> okay. Hey, let me find a, let me get one here. I've got a couple of them that I think are just hilarious to me and let's, all right. So Dr. Michael Tuig, um, world renowned act researcher, try not to laugh. Just say no to drugs. Well, if I'm talking to my drugs, I probably already said yes. Oh, that's good. Okay. Next. Okay. Oh, I should have the next one. I thought I could get you on that one. Don't laugh yet because this one, scrolling through them, here it comes. I feel bad for the homeless guy, but I really feel bad for the homeless guy's dog because he must be thinking, man, this is the longest walk ever. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, okay, you try. I have, I have. Oh, like, I, okay. I have, I'll be okay. I have like two banked jokes. Okay, I'm. I, no one is well, okay. Well, these are my second experience, and the first person texted me yesterday and said, "Oh, I want, I want to do it to you now." So, all right, now this is the first ever experience, and I'm, yeah. I'm okay. <clears throat> okay, so there's two fish in a tank. One says, "I'll drive." You man the guns. <laughs> you know what that means? <laughs> in a tank. Oh, that's even better. I just thought it was complete <laughs> nonsense. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm oh, okay. Yeah. How's it go? What did the fish say that swam into the concrete wall? What? Damn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Maybe I got to rethink this. I thought I'd be able to do that. Okay. Yeah. Well done. That's all I have. Those are my that, okay. Those are good enough. So, all right, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. And I hope that You're I welcome. can have you on again in the not too distant yeah. future. A sneak preview. I meant to even bring this up or work some with scrupulosity, which I think is like mm -hmm. kind of a whole other realm. And I would love your thoughts on that. Maybe it's just a, a sneak. Well, preview yeah. And we yeah. being two, two Utah based guys, we just skipped yep. right over the pornography stuff. And that's oh, such a, okay. Yes. So such an interest. But, I, yeah, I was like, Oh, I want to tell you stories about that. Okay, so can so I have maybe you back next on time. soon? Okay, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. So, all right, okay. uh, what a pleasure! I really appreciate the time. This is everything I had hoped it would be and more. So I can't oh, wait to talk to you again. Okay, all right, thanks, Mike. Yeah. Okay, we'll talk to you later. Okay, bye bye. Compressed emotions flying past our heads and out the other end. The pressures of the daily grind is wonderful. Elastic waste and rubber. I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter most Why?